Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. I've never seen anything like this from H1N1 to Ebola. I mean, I've, I've not experienced this. I know there's been a lot of bad stuff out there. You know, I've, I have felt scared and angry and hopeful and worried and, and eager to see the good that can come from this. Lift each other up because, uh, you know, we're doing great things and, and we need that support from each other. If we're going to be humanity's backbone, we got We have to, we just have to hold each other up. Educators across the globe that kind of came together on social media platforms and shared and collaborated and cheered each other on and cried when bad things happened together. And it was incredible. Hi there, listeners. I'm your podcast host, Marie McMillan. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm an ICU nurse, I'm a writer, and I've been sharing healthcare stories through head to toe for the last four years. Check out your podcast feed for lots of interviews with extraordinary stories, trending topics, and career profiles of healthcare professionals. This is the first of four episodes on the topic of COVID-19. Back in May 2020, I interviewed four professionals about their experiences on the front lines and their thoughts about the pandemic. Since it has been two months, things have changed by the time you hear this. Some things have improved, some things have worsened, depending on the time of day. Either way, wherever you are in the pandemic, Healthcare professionals are finally being brought into the international media spotlight. So I'm glad to bring you this conversation with John Inkrot, a flight respiratory therapist in Orlando, Florida. Please enjoy. John Inkrot, how the heck are you? Welcome back um, to Head to Toe. I'm well. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, for those of you out there who don't know or haven't heard the episode prior with uh, John C. Inkrant, who is a registered respiratory therapist. John, why don't you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and uh, what you're seeing right now? Absolutely. And thanks again for having me. And uh, my name is John Inkrant. I'm a registered respiratory therapist and adult critical care specialist. I am a Florida native. I currently reside in Central Florida, and that is where I work. Most of my background for the past 27 years has been in critical care, education, and I'm currently very active in the transport environment for the past seven years. So that's where I hang my hat and uh, married. have a two stepdaughters. One's in New York, one's here, one from the University of South Florida, which is where she's been since March. So we're hoping that everybody can go back to school come the fall, but I think that remains to be seen. So currently in Central Florida, you know, things are in the downtick and we hopefully don't see that resurgence that we're talking about. We've had a little bit of an influx here and there, but nothing uh, remarkably measurable. So that being said, we are on the downslope and we are, you know, I guess kind of breathing a sigh of relief that we, and I have to say that you know, I'm speaking on my experience here in Central Florida and I just want to preface that. Uh, because I, I can't speak for my colleagues around the country because I know that there are people in very, very hot spots that did not experience the, I don't even want to call it the, the, the benefit. I mean, they, they experienced things much, much worse than what we did here in Central Florida. I think we were all prepared for the worst, and then some areas got worse than worst, and then other areas didn't get hit so bad. And you know, with the amount of people that Central Florida sees every year with our theme parks and our attractions, I think I'm pretty amazed that we didn't end up in a worse spot. So uh, that's what we're doing right now in Central Florida. So Yeah. 
Yeah, I hear you on um on that. We were all prepared for the worst uh, over here on the West Coast. I'm in Portland, so not that far from Seattle, but uh, the Seattle yep. area, you know, had huge, huge influx of numbers. So we went into full on disaster mode overdrive. And thankfully, like you said, we've uh, were prepared for this surge. Didn't really see a huge amount of it. But every day it was like, is today going to be the day? Is this going to be the shift? Because from what we learned from our colleagues up in Seattle is that they went from like no patients to like 56 in a 12 hour period. So yeah, it was the anxiety it's anxiety producing to be sure yes and you know what one of my very good colleagues is up there and um he's been very active um on the speaking uh engagements and talking about you know patient zero up there because that's who they saw and they were hit pretty hard with an influx of patients just like you had referenced and Mm -hmm. you know he had talked about in one of his lectures that, you know, it came down to space, staff, and stuff. And I think that's such a great way to determine or to kind of define this is that, you know, having the staff to do what we need to do. And, and you know, the one thing that we did notice from a respiratory therapist perspective is that we kind of ran out of respiratory therapists. And that's mm-hmm. a, a subject that we can talk about here shortly. But having the staff to perform the duties necessary and to certainly accept the challenge of taking care of these very sick patients, having the space to put these patients and then having the stuff to take care of them. Obviously, we talked about ventilators and the shortage that, you know, some places did experience, others did not. And of course, the stockpile and some of the intricacies or headaches with getting that activated. But nonetheless, I thought that was a very good way to kind of define what we all what we all look for when we take care of these patients, space stuff and stuff. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it for sure. Yep. It, I got the links that you sent me to the the video series, which I'm going to share in the in the show notes for you guys listening out there. But the staffing model with the pyramids that it showed, that's exactly what what we all started training for this sort of, you know, the big pandemic surge model of um, non-critical care physicians and nurses and like how to like manage that through this like pyramid model. You guys should go take a look because that's immediately what we started training for non ICU nurses and physicians suddenly immediately starting to loop into the ICU environment and how to manage mechanical ventilation. And I'm glad that that's sort of a formalized way of doing it. I was told that that is sort of inspired by a lot of military triage, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure is true. I don't know from personal experience, but thanks right. for those links. Yeah. Absolutely. And we thought, you know, with the colleagues that we did that sheet with, I think there's 10 of us, but we, you know, we recognized this early on. And, and those folks are from other very, very well-respected facilities throughout the country, including Seattle and Cleveland and Baltimore. And so we, we recognized early on that, hey, you know what, we're going to need some professionals, we're going to need some of our ancillary staff to be able to stand by or at least stand in front of mechanical ventilator and either A, set it up, or B, help manage it. I just listened to a, a webinar and listened to an anesthesiologist talk about the use of anesthesia machines in the ICU to take care of some of these patients. Mm-hmm. And it was very well referenced in, in how he put that, you know, obviously we would we would need to cross-train, you know, professionals on how to manage anesthesia ventilators because there, there are differences mm-hmm. in those in ICU. And so, you know, we, we cross-train staff. We have anesthesia staff available to do rounding on those on those patients, the rounding on those machines. But we have properly cross-trained staff to manage those mach- machines in the meantime, and you're going to have anesthesia staff on call, you know, to answer any questions or to do anything. And that's kind of what we wanted to do and what we certainly expected to do as a respiratory profession. You know, I have phenomenal colleagues on the side, and one of the things, one of the benefits that we saw from this as we can get into in, in the show is you know, some of the pluses that we saw was such an early collaboration between RNs and RTs and the critical care teams that are involved in these patients. So we were all for, 
you know, our nursing friends or our resident friends or whoever needed to stand in front of that ventilator and take care of this patient, I'm not worried about losing my job. I'm not worried about somebody taking my job. Just like the anesthesiologist is not worried about an RT coming into their environment and taking over for a CRNA. Mm-hmm. We are all, right, we are all trying to do things. And, and if we have to cross in certain arenas because of this pandemic, something we've never seen, I'm pushing 50 years old, RT for 27 years. I've never seen anything like this from H1N1 to Ebola. I mean, I've, I've not experienced this. I know there's been a lot of bad stuff out there, mm-hmm. but I've not experienced anything like this. And I don't think, I, unless you're rattled, you haven't experienced anything like this in your career. So it's very new to mm-hmm. all of us. And that being said, we all need to be open to uh, taking care of our patients in, in whatever means, you know, necessary. 100% agree. That's that's interesting you bring that sentiment up of, oh, I, I'm worried about someone taking my job. I have not heard that from from anyone anywhere. That's 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 interesting. Have you experienced that a lot from from colleagues or just is that just kind of you know, It's it's a fuse that I don't want to light. Ah, got it. <laughs> it, it. It upsets me. It upsets me a lot. And because I love this profession, it's been very good to me getting it for me it's like a bottle of wine it's, it's just getting better so it's disheartening to hear some of the whether you're new in the field whether you've been in it for you know 15 years or, or you're a veteran like myself you know we we all have a job to do and that is to take care of a patient the patient mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if we need to do that we do do that from a team approach that's my nurse T, that's mm-hmm. my dietitian, that's my lab person, that's my services. It doesn't matter. We all have a role and we all help each other. Mm-hmm. And so it was disorienting to hear. But yeah, there are some rumblings out there about, you know, a nurse standing in front of a ventilator making changes and stuff. And you know what? Listen, I stand at the ICU bedside and if I say, hey, can you hit that knob right there? Turn it to the left. Yeah, just turn the O2 down. Okay, now hit it again. Thanks, thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. What's what's the problem? Where's the where's the issue? Yeah. It's a little disheartening. And, you know, the, the point to that is, Marie, is that, you know, whether it's a nurse or a paramedic or somebody else standing there with that ventilator, there's an RT always available. You know, and I tell my medic people that, too, is that here's a really good example. At my system, we use a lot of critical care paramedics to take care of these critically ill patients, and they're on mechanical ventilators. And guess who teaches them how to run those ventilators? That'd be Mm -hmm. me. And I'm not worried about them overstepping their boundaries or, quote, unquote, taking my job. We all have a role to play, and they mm-hmm. always have my number, and they always can call me if something comes up. And I think that that's, that's the analogy I want to use in this, is that you know there's RTs out there that are available in case Marie has a question or in case... You know, somebody else has a question. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like this, you know, it's bringing out some of the best and the ugliest in us, this whole pandemic. You know, I think that the whole turf war thing, like, yeah, that that can get to people sometimes. But like you said, we all need to rise above and and, and see that this is a global problem. And it, it's you're taking care of your patient. But that means you're also taking care of yourself because it's a public health issue. So so like you, you know, said, yeah, I won't light your fuse too much. But <laughs> you know, like a sign in the hallway. You know, we're all a team and everybody signs it. Guess what? Their patient is that sign. Let's everybody sign it. Let's everybody pitch in and take care of this patient mm-hmm. so we can hopefully have the best outcome. Because these folks, you know, they either can tolerate this hypoxia and they can tolerate not being intubated or they get horribly, horribly sick and they end up intubated. But that's a, yeah. it's good that you point that out because I was going to say the same thing. This this pandemic, and as, as I think a lot of cr- critical situations do, they can bring out the best and the worst. Yeah. In your in your profession. So. Yeah. 
Tell me about your personal interaction with the coronavirus itself, just so the listeners can kind of hear like what your what your actual interaction with patients are like. I know you said you t- you teach, and they everyone knows that you know you teach RT things. You work with the ARC, um, but you also are an active flight respiratory therapist, and so you're you're seeing patients and you're transporting patients. So as far as like screening and you know our our testing capability has how shall I say it not been. Mm, stellar. Right. So, right. Uh, how does does so that just mean like the ambulance guys I see in the ICU who are transporting patients? They're just like, "Yep, this is my N95 for forever." So, <laughs> tell me about yeah. how it's impacted your work, kind of. Great question. So, it's funny. I transported one yesterday via ground back to our place, and we have you know we have the proper PPE, which is uh, you know again one of the benefits is that we did have PPE that we needed. We have the North masks. So we were we were protected as we should be. So that being said, from an air perspective, there's a there's a huge timeout um, when this all started. A very big industry wide kind of stand down, not a everybody stand down. It was kind of a self imposed stand down for the program, and we all just kind of said, huh. How are we going to go about this? Because there are some things you really need to think about if you're going to put these patients in an aircraft, and that is obviously cross-contamination. You know, do you have a buy-in from everybody? Is your pilot on board? Is your mechanic on board? Is you know everybody that takes care of that helicopter plus the medical crew? Are they all on board with this? Because you go get the patient, you come back, and then you leave. You still have a helicopter, you know, unsanitary or not one that you want to put a patient in. So it needs to be taken care of and obviously be sanitized. So how do you go about that? Well, there's a huge screening process. And, you know, one of the things that we determined, first patient we put in that aircraft was March 23rd, was that, you know, we really prefer our patients that are going to be transported in the aircraft to be intubated because we have a little bit better control of obviously how that gets, you know, disseminated from a, from a viral standpoint. So we have filters on our ventilators. So we have a patient that's intubated. So we can, you know, our infected disease folks wanted us to put a mask over our intubated patient. As an RT, you're thinking, okay, so I got a cuff on that tube. It's a circuit. Okay, whatever you'd like, I will do. Mm-hmm. So we did. We put, we put masks on our intubated patients just so we can make everybody, you know, happy and obviously make sure that we didn't expose other people to things that, you know, they don't deserve to be exposed to. So from that perspective, it was, it was, you know, kind of a pre-screening. Our dispatchers would kind of figure out things, give us the information. We'd put it past the pilots. We'd tell them how we're feeling. And then we would make that decision. There are programs around the country that transported many, many COVID patients. My program, we transported 437, not my air program, but our air and ground. We did 437 transports, 110 of those were positive. So almost a three to one negative to positive ratio. But the majority of those, Marie, were done by the ground crews. All of our ground crews were obviously kept track of what patients they transported. I mean, I have a whole printout of the person's name, how many COVID patients are COVID, people under suspicion or even COVID positive, how many COVID patients reported. Um, and then obviously they, they keep an eye on those guys pretty well. So we did five patients so far in the aircraft and our flight team has done five patients by ground. I work with another uh, fixed wing program out of North Tampa and uh, they have also done some. It's kind of ironic because, you know, the big to do about the cruise ship passengers, guys that finally ended up in Miami, uh, ironically, right. Ironically, lost the the program I worked for in North Tampa. You know, ended up taking some of those patients up to my facility here in Central Florida. So, same thing is that they had to be really, really careful with how they transport those patients. And that uh, program there has an isopod, which is a kind of a, a quarantine sort of boy in the bubble looking thing, and it's got you know gloves that you can or I don't even know how to describe it, but they're like glove apparatuses on the outside that you can 
put your hands in and take care of the patient while they're in isopod. Yeah. So, so my experience has been from the transport perspective has been limited because a lot of programs, even my fellow programs from around state of Florida, these patients, because, you know, you have to ask, okay, why are we, why are we transporting this patient from a facility? Is it because of critical care services are not available there? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the game plan for my institution early on was to kind of get all those sick patients to one location. So we could kind of, we had cohort ICUs that they were going to be put in. We had certain areas that we were going to put these patients in. Mm -hmm. And that way, we didn't have a smattering of these patients throughout Orange County and Central Florida. So they kind of turfed them all from our other campuses to our place. And at the maps, I think there was 60, 65 patients on mechanical ventilators at one time. And that was back in early April. Yeah. So, and again, our facility is, is pretty well resourced. They have over 100 ventilators in their fleet. So they were pretty, they were, they were okay, but at the same time, that's a staffing that they had to do. They had three cohort ICUs, all pretty much maxed out at that time. So it was a very, very difficult time for those folks. I took them lunch, went up there and <laughs> brought a bunch of sub sandwiches up to them. And, you know, again, not the best in your, your staff and, and colleagues. And that was, you know, because my exposure was kind of limited, I, I what, what could I do? Right. To kind of make things a little bit better and a little bit easier. So, but you know, the patient that I saw yesterday found the patient prone, left them prone. You know, took him over to our place in the back of an ambulance, and all of us in full garb, Tyvek suits, North masks, the whole nine yards. So, yeah, we've all been very fortunate that none of us in a two hundred and fifty personnel EMS system, none of us have been uh, positive. So, yeah. It sounds like you guys are doing a lot of the similar things across the country, which I think one is is limiting procedures and transport, like in your case, you know, limiting the transport from point A to point B, really looking at do we need to be transporting this person, you know, trying to cohort the positive patients in the same place. And then, you know, this is all like real time science, right? You're talking about like the mask over your intubated patient. I can just I can like see the face of many of the RTs I work with just like nodding their head like, Mm. okay. You yep. can do that, whatever, yep. you know, it's like not going to hurt anybody, but if it makes you feel better, that's fine too. And yep. um, at least where I work, going back to real time science, like the, the hot topic is the AGPs, the aerosol generating procedures. And, you know, in the ICU, like, what point do I need to put the papper on? Like, you know, when do I take it off? And like, it just goes hand in hand with our testing capability. If we have the rapid express test available within 45 minute turnaround, that really yeah. helps like you know, direct the care of whether we should do a bronch on this person or not. Does the patient need one nurse or can that nurse be split into a, you know, a two patient assignment kind of thing? And it's just testing. I, the more and more I, I read and learn about it, the more I'm like, man, I wish testing was a whole lot better. It would make our lives a whole lot easier. It wouldn't maybe take away the number of cases, but it would make the healthcare system at least more smooth. I agree. I think that's a frustrating part to this is that, you know, the testing has been, you know, my institution just terminated a contract with the facility because a, a large portion of the test results were inaccurate or unperformed or, you know, it's been in the press and so on and so forth. So I'm not really spilling any beans that aren't already out there. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's the frustrating part is like, really? And maybe it's, you know, maybe we're trying to do this too quickly or, you know, because we are under a lot of pressure to get these test results or to know if these patients are positive or negative. But at the same time, what are we sacrificing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Accuracy, that's a huge deal. So, yeah. but yeah, I mean, these patients really presented kind of differently. I mean, we, I think we have a new appreciation for pruning, whether it's self-pruning and the patients that are 
just on high flow oxygen. Uh, you know, even in the intubated patients, it was very labor intensive, but, you know, they had pronine teams and they would have six full at the bedside. And, you know, patients that weren't in rotoprone beds, they got self or they got manually prone. Yeah. So, you know, and that tended to help. You know, we were only colleagues up in Chicago. They had some successful proning. If, you know, patients that were prone and they, they responded to that proning generally survived. And if they got prone and they didn't, and those were the ones that really didn't work out so well. So, so um, it's been a really eye-opening experience, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the two things when you talk about proning that I think about is I saw some graphic out there like encouraging like primary care physicians trying to manage their, you know, not hospital sick patients, but patients who are ill who call in to do a virtual, you know, urgent care visit. Like they're suggesting patients at home who are having real trouble with like whatever viral illness, upper respiratory illness that they're dealing with. So, like they're suggesting to these patients, hey, try sleeping on your belly. It's like I saw this graphic of it and it just kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, even then if they can, pre- if that can help prevent, you know, the hypoxia and organ failure sort of awfulness that brings right. you to the ICU that that's that's great and then the other thing with the proning I think you know it comes down to the RTs and the nurses at the bedside who have to do those things um, at least manually where I work we don't we don't use the rotoprones beds where right. I work but uh, you know then you're in this room and you have a Darth Vader suit on and then you know it takes like an hour and a half to like you know get into the room out the room and then you know they, they're trying to tell you like alright we need to prone this person but you can only have three people <laughs> Right. The and then all eventually, you know, you know, the number one like comorbidity that everyone is seeing is obesity, right? Yep. <laughs> like all these patients. So we're just like, all right, we got it. And it's just like, I, my heart goes out to all these ICU nurses and RTs out there. I'm just like, guys are just like the best. You're just making a square peg fit in a round hole and like, co- you know, COVID 19, whatever. We'll just put the mask on the intubated patient. Sure. Whatever. We'll make it work. You know, it's just. Right. They're, they're, they're awesome. I'm, I'm proud of my profession and I'm proud of frontline healthcare workers to be sure. I'm, I'm sure you are as well. And good on you for bringing the sub sandwiches to those people because like you said, people just want to help in any way that they can. Right. Right. And, and, it, you know, to echo that sentiment, I am too. I'm a very, very proud respiratory therapist. I'm proud of my profession. I'm proud of my colleagues. I am very, very fortunate to have some really, really close friends that, you know, I've been working with for the past four or five years on different projects. And, you know, if we can send out a one pager where people can kind of look at this and get just a basic sense of some of the taxonomy that we use and some of the other things that uh, we discuss in the respiratory world and lung protective strategies, you know, there's a really good escalation of put your patients on lung protective strategies. They're not performing well, put them prone. They're not performing well, you might want to consider either adjunctive mode uh, or even ECMO. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's something else that we, you know, we did and, and people coming back to our place you know, they did get put on ECMO. I think we had 12 people placed on ECMO. I don't know the survivability of those 12, but I know mm-hmm. that they, you know, we did end up putting someone on ECMO. So, you know, but yeah, it, uh, whatever I could do to kind of make things easier, to make people smile, and, mm-hmm. you know, so. It is what it is, and we're in the world that we're in. And uh, I guess my my one of my final questions to you is like, what are your takeaways from this pandemic so far? Because this is this is just the beginning, right? This is just the like the first quarter of the game. So, right. what are your takeaways so far from the pandemic on a personal, professional level, or or otherwise? Like I said at the beginning, welcome to the new world. I mean, we're going to see, I think, a lot more vigilance on the public's part. I think social distancing has kind of helped. I think us being late to the game, especially on the East Coast, maybe not so much out in Portland and Seattle, mm-hmm. but certainly in in the Southeast and, and even in Florida, 
being kind of late to the game and being able to close things down and social distance and things under wrap pretty quickly, I think that's where we kind of benefited. We kind of learned some things from Italy. We learned some things mm-hmm. from China. And so we were very, very fortunate here. But that being said, I think we're going to see a lot more visual social distancing. I think we're going to be a lot more careful, and I hope that we can get testing to where it's more accurate and at least more efficient. I think we recognize the absolute importance of having the appropriate PPE and having it in stock and having it available. Mm-hmm. I think the national stockpile has also gotten some attention that it probably deserved and needed. And uh, I know that ventilators are getting added to the stockpile as well. So that's a benefit. And I think we kind of covered it. You kind of recognize the best and the worst in some of your professional colleagues. And so you know, you know, you know kind of who to count on and then maybe ones that you can't count on. I hate to say that, but especially in the time of a pandemic, but kind of appreciate those who bring a lot to the table or certainly open themselves up to taking care of whoever, wherever, as mm-hmm. opposed to maybe some that are just like, you know, I don't want nothing to do with that or, you know, kind of begrudge having your ancillary staff or your other professionals help you to take care of this patient and ultimately have a good outcome. So, but those are my personal takeaways. I know that from a transport perspective, we're going to need to be obviously very, very vigilant in how we address these patients and take care of them and take care of ourselves. And I think that's something, I think we're starting to see that, Marie, is we're really starting mm-hmm. to see the the emotional and mental toll that it's taken on people. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, that was, yeah. That was a big discussion this past week and some of the uh, panels that I sat in on was the mental health aspect of this and where we're going with that because we're going to start to see a lot of that because we've seen some of it, we've heard of it, on the news. some of us have dealt with personal experiences with others, but I think we're going to see more of it. And we just need to keep an eye on each other. We need to be a, a bouncing board for people. We all need to talk. And I think this is a great platform. And I think that social media outlets can be, they can be dangerous, but they can also be very beneficial. And just reaching out for a buddy, we call it a buddy system on our team, you know, pick out somebody on the team that you're buddies with. And I got more than one, but I mean, I've got friends on the team that I can always turn to and say, today's not my day, you know, or mm-hmm. vice versa. And I think that that's important that we all keep an eye on each other and, you know, give each other a hug when someone needs a hug or a high five or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's the Well, it may not like a hug these days but i know what you mean like (laughs) we do we totally do it like you know like in our health because it's funny like that you know the emails you get from administration like you know try to social distance and rounds and at the nurse's station or whatever and then like you have to go in a room together and like stand shoulder to shoulder to like turn a patient and you're like what's the point you know you know and i think that's that's kind of the microcosm of this whole discussion is i say oh give them a hug and high five and it's like oh wait no we can't Welcome to the right. new to the new normal. But right. you know, the virtual high five or the, the elbow yeah. bump or you know right. Just be there well, for each other. Yeah, it's no, it's a good point because, like, you know, we're in this different world. Like, you're packed in a helicopter. How it's not six feet wide, like, <laughs> or maybe it is. I have never been in one, but but yeah, it's um, it's of you know what what is recommended, right? And then what happens in the real world, you know? And it's like we're all doing our best. We all need to hold each other up. 100% agree with you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and your feelings, John. Um, my heart goes out to you and your colleagues, and I, I hope. You guys stay healthy, especially with Florida sort of opening up with the beaches. And like you said, maybe some of the attractions will start. Um, and, you know, as, as restrictions sort of fall, we're going to we're going to see more cases. But hopefully with this initial surge, like you said, we're benef- we'll benefit from it not being as bad and learning from how other places have have weathered the storm better so we can be more prepared. So thanks for all your thoughts. Thank you, and my best to you, and please be safe, and I appreciate you having me on, so thank you. 
This is just one piece of the pandemic pie. This is just one person's ankle on coronavirus. I hope you benefited from their story as I have, and I hope you think about your own place in this uncertain and changing healthcare landscape and what your takeaways are so far. As always, you can get in touch with me at macmillanpages at gmail.com. Find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and all of my creative work at mariemacmillan.com. Thank you to my four amazing podcast show guests. Be sure to check out the other coronavirus episodes in your podcast feed, COVID takeaways parts one, two, three, and four, and check the show notes for links to all the things we talked about. Thank you to Shannon Smith for help with editing, and thank you listeners for your support. That's all for now. Until next time, take care.